Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're, we're, if there's Bibles in the back, if you don't have one, the verses will be up on the screen. Um, we, we are walking through this book. We did not take a break um, from the book during this Advent season. We kind of connected the, the, the sermons together with, with uh, the different um, Advent seasons, J- joy, love, Peace today and hope, and then the Christ candle will be tomorrow night. Hopefully, you'll be here for the Christmas Eve service again, four and seven. So we're in, we're going to continue walking through this. We're in Second Samuel chapter twelve today. We're finishing up, almost completing the the whole chapter. Uh, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of First and Second Samuel. And we've come to the place we're in the second book. We've come to the place where the beloved second king of Israel, his name is David. Um, has, to, to my account anyway, violated at least seven of the Ten Commandments, not suggestions, commandments, including idolatry, adultery, and murder. It was a time of, of prosperity for David, uh, a time when the kingdom of, of Israel was unified under one king. Uh, and it just goes to show us that temptation to, to sin and rebel is a problem not only when things are going well, uh, when things are going bad, but when things are going well. David commits adultery with a woman, her name is Bathsheba, whose husband Uriah was a royal friend and fellow soldier in David's army. In fact, the scripture says that he was actually one of the mighty men of David who, who came to David's aid while David was on run, was on the run from King Saul who was trying to kill him. And after Bathsheba told David she was pregnant from this adultery, he did what many of us do and we're found out we cover and hide and bury our tracks. It literally, really, for him. He sends Uriah from the battle, from the battle back home in hopes to have sexual relationship with his wife so that when the baby's born, everyone would think it's Uriah's son. It doesn't work. David, excuse me, Uriah has more integrity than David does. And then David says, all right, I, I, I gotta come up with another plan. So he sends the commander of his army, Joab, a message and says, put Uriah in the front of the line. This way, when he gets killed, he'll look like a casualty of war. That's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed. Bathsheba mourns for her husband. And after this mourning period, the king, King David, sends for Bathsheba, who then becomes his wife. Ah, plan succeeded. All's good. Well, David has a guilty conscience, we saw that last week, and things are not all that good because God, in his mercy and his grace, sends his word to David through the prophet Nathan. Remember, this is is David the king. This is David who was given the promise of God that he will will unify the the nation. He will... uh, um, prepare for the nation a place to dwell. He was given a covenant promise that his son will build a a, a temple and his greater son, a descendant of David, will have a kingdom and a throne that will last forever. And we know who that king is. It is the king of kings. His name is Jesus. This is the man that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. God's not going to let his king, this promised king, to live in his sin. But in his grace, God's grace, he does send the prophet. It's, it's intervening grace of God. Remember, 
Nathan comes to him in chapter 12 and, and gives him a, a word picture story about a rich man and a poor man and it crushes David. And David finally confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Last week we looked at Psalm 51 that David came to himself. David came to the reality that he sinned against God. David came to the truth that his sin was ultimately against God, that God was the only one who could wash him from his iniquity, could cleanse him from his sin. God would be the only one who could purge him with hyssop, pointing to the sacrifice, blood sacrifice. Only God create can create David a, a, a new heart, a right spirit, to restore David to the joy of God's salvation, Psalm 51. A clear indication of repentance, a change of mind, a change of direction involving uh, the, not only the mind but the emotion and the volition. We saw that last week, Psalm 51. David's repentance of his sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the army, against ultimately against the Lord. And that's where we pick up our story And the fundamental reality of life, and you all know this, is that God may forgive, God may cleanse, God may wash you of your sin. But sometimes the consequences, unfortunately, remain. Sometimes the consequences remain. We have repented, we have acknowledged, we have turned from our sins, we receive God's forgiveness, but sometimes the consequences remain. The word of the Lord, chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Jonathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan, the man of God, the prophet of God, said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. I forgive you. Nevertheless, chapter 12, verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child. The child who is born to you shall die. You know, just like in life today, innocent people suffer for crimes committed by someone else. If someone is Using drugs, heavily into drugs, gives birth to a child. The child may live, the child may die. It's not the, it's not the punishment of the child. It's the consequences of the mother's action. The mother lives, the child dies. It's the consequences. We ought to tread lightly as we look at this passage together in thinking that we understand how the infinite mind and the, and the purposes of God work. We talk a lot about the sovereignty of God here, that God has the power and the right to govern over all things according to his holy wise and holy purposes. Yes, even scripture teaches us that our sinful and stupid actions, my sinful and stupid actions, are in the hands of God and that God himself cannot do evil. There is no darkness in God at all. But he permits others to sin, to me and you to sin and do evil. And then he overrules it and bends it according to his holy purposes. You say, how does that happen? I don't know. I don't have to know. But praise God, because if you're a child of God today and his love has been bestowed upon you because of the gospel through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you can be assured that your sin, my sin, 
will be used of God so that we come to the end of ourselves and recognize him and give him glory and praise. You see, when, when he gets glory, and that's what we're going to see here today. This is what this passage is about. He gets glory, we get joy. So as we're looking at this passage, I want you to think through that. Because we're going to see in this text, number one, we're going to see the gracious surgeon. It's the work of God. Then we're going to see David is a changed man. And then we'll see not the death of a son, which starts this passage, but a son who is born, a beloved son, a son who is loved of God. So David has sinned. David has been confronted. David confesses and repents of his sin. And now the outworking of his consequences. Look at with me, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. David sinned, he confessed, repents. Nevertheless, Nathan says, by the word of God, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but David would not, nor did he eat food with them. Hear the word of the Lord. The first thing I want to consider as we look at this is what the Lord says to Nathan, what the Lord says through Nathan about David's sin. Look at look what it says. David's sin was the scorning of the Lord. Some of your translations made the enemy scorn the Lord. The, the, the point is that David has done this and it has scorned the Lord. Now the word scorn means to despise. So the word scorn means, and some of your translations has blasphemy. It means to deal with God irreverently. To deal with God disrespectfully. Its antonym, its opposite is Glory. It's the opposite of glory and the infinite in weight of God's reality, his glory, his infinite importance. So I want you to see what's going on here in this sin. David sinned against a lot of people, but ultimately we said, and he said in Psalm 51, that it was ultimately against the Lord. And you see, it starts right here. David disregarded the infinite treasure and glory of God. His infinite value and worth has been diminished, disregarded by David. Now, you and I can't diminish God's glory. God is glorious, period. But we can in our life, right? So when we sing, give God glory, we're not, we're not adding glory to him. We're ascribing him the glory he already has. And what David is saying is, what, what Nathan is saying to David is, the sin that you have committed, all these sins, really has now bring glory to yourself. You disregarded the glory of God. You disregarded and dealt with him irreverently. He is no longer your ultimate treasure and infinite praise. You were. You treated him lightly. God is not going to allow his children, especially David, whose whose son is going to save the world. He's not going to allow him to continue that way. He's not going to allow us to continue that way. He's going to bring things into our life to change that. If David had seen Bathsheba walking on that rooftop and said, wow, she's beautiful, but 
My eyes will not look upon her that way, right? Uh, my, my ultimate satisfaction and joy and treasure is God. All that God is, all that God has done for me, he has given me so much. How can I do this? He didn't do that. You and I don't do that when we sin, right? You and I, do, we don't do that when we sin. When we sin, we say, I want my glory, my satisfaction. We all do it. So God has to do some surgery here. And notice what happened after the child gets sick. What is sick? David falls on his face, right? And he's praying and he's fasting. and He's laying on the ground for seven days. He's praying. He's fasting. Think about what's going on. I mean, number one, he knows, David knows, that the sickness that has come to the child is the result of the word of God given to him by Nathan, right? This is, this is, this is what Nathan said is going to happen. But what does David do anyway? Family, he's, he, he's praying. Why? The word of the Lord came to you. Why is he praying on behalf of this child? I'll tell you why. Because he knew God. Because David had a personal relationship with God Almighty. And David knew, what we learned last week in Psalm 51, right around this time, right? That God is a God, what? Of mercy. God is a God of great compassion. God is a God of steadfast love. That Hebrew word, chesed, loyal love. He knew God was a God of mercy. And he's thinking, you know what? I know what the word of the Lord said, but I'm praying on behalf of of my son because I know God. And I'm, I'm, I, maybe he'll show me more grace. Ralph David writes, for, for David, grace is not a doctrinal concept, but the peculiar bent of God's nature. David's praying. I know what the word of the Lord said, but I, I'm, I know God. I'm praying for my son. There's a story of an impoverished philosopher in the court of Alexander the Great. And he was in a financial straits once again. And he went to Alexander, and Alexander gave him what is called a commission to go into the treasury and to receive whatever you want. So he walks in, in Alexander's name, give me 10,000 pounds. The treasury's like, no, I don't think so. That's a lot of money. I'm not giving it to you. So he goes to Alexander, the treasurer goes to Alexander and says, do you know this guy came and he's demanding 10,000 pounds in your name? Alexander the Great heard the treasurer out and then he replied this, let the money be instantly paid. I am delighted with this philosopher's way of thinking. He has done me singular honor by the largeness of his request. He shows the high idea he has conceived both of my superior wealth and my loyal generosity, end quote. See what he's saying? This guy's, <laughs> he knows me. He knows how wealthy I am. Now, God did not grant David's request. That's not the point. In David's mind, he's asking God to change. Now, I'm a reformed guy. I'm, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God, right? God is sovereign. He knows the beginning from the end. He's asking God to change, to not do this, to change the consequences. You see, God has all day ordained the means by which his eternal purposes come to be, and that is through prayer. 
Calvin said it this way, prayer digs up those treasures which the gospel of our Lord discovers to the eye of faith. Lord, successful prayer is the ordained means by which God accomplishes his purposes. And it is the way in which David now is praying. He's believing God. He, he's taking, he, he's, he, 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 he believes in the sovereignty of God. He knows God is sovereign, but that has, that has prompted David to pray. Do you see that? The second thing we know that when he's praying, David's praying, he's fasting. He, he knows his God. He, he's, he believes that God is a God of mercy and compassion and could change. Ask him to change and take these consequences. But he also knows, David also knows, while he's praying for those seven days, that what's happening to him and his son is not retribution, right? It's not payback. God is not exacting payment for his sin. How do we know that? Verse 13. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. It means forgiven you will not die i forgive you I, I i am no longer treating you as a condemned man i'm not exacting payment i'm not giving you what you deserve i have forgiven i put away your sin you're not going to die david your kingship your, your your son that will sit on eternal throne will not be prevented because of your sin that's the grace of god but david Nathan is saying, we're doing heart surgery. I'm going to use this consequence of your sin to do a needed heart surgery on you, David. I'm going to perform. You see, all of us suffer. Sometimes because of our own sins and stupidity, and sometimes not. Look at Job. As I said earlier, sometimes we suffer because of other people's sins. Other times, simply because we live in a broken, fallen, jacked up, sinful world. But suffering for children of God in the hands of God means it is always purposeful. David will learn from his suffering to put his ultimate trust in God. To not scorn the Lord, to not despise the Lord, to not treat the Lord irreverently. And, and this is not the work of an egomaniac God. God demands us to worship him. God demands us to glorify him. God de- de- calls us all to treasure him above all earthly treasures, not because he's an egomaniac, but because he is infinitely glorious and with incalculable worth and when we recognize that the praise God demands is also the completion of the enjoyment we should have in him then, not only is it legitimate and necessary, right, but it's beneficial to us. Worship the true God means bringing us joy. And God would not be God if he did not demand Our worship. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I think we delight, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyments. End quote. You see, God desires our greatest good, and there is no greater good in the universe than God himself. Simple as that. Not as easy, but simple to hear. So, let me say it this way. If therefore God is truly to love us, 
If God is truly to love us, he must give of himself. And demanding our praise is the most loving thing God can do because it means that God is after our joy. And if you don't understand that suffering brings us to the end of ourselves, to the place of, of, of stripping away the things that, that are temporal to keep our eyes on the infinite, glorious one. If you don't understand that, you'll never get off the floor when you suffer. You'll be on the floor. You'll be on the floor. David's going to learn what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He said this, We are afflicted in every way. We're suffering, we're being afflicted in every way, Paul said, but not crushed. We're suffering, we're afflicted, but we're not going to be crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. Tim Keller, suffering always is surgery on your trusts, what you trust. That's the reason why suffering is almost the only fast way and the only profound way to radical personal change. Amen. Because only suffering shows you what you're made of, shows you who you are shows you what you're really about, end quote. <laughs> David is having surgery. And the good hand of God is doing a work on David's heart. And you can see the change. Verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. Yet the servants of David were afraid. I'm not going to tell them the child was dead. They said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he, he didn't listen to us. How then could we say to him, now the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servant, is the child dead? They said, he's dead. And David arose from the earth. He got up from the floor, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. What's going on, David? It's the seventh day. If you know anything about the Jewish law, uh, you know that it's on the eighth day that the son is circumcised and given a covenant name. His death was of great concern for David's servants. It's, it's the seventh day that he might harm himself, literally evil himself. But after David finds out what's going on, his actions astonish everybody. The change in his behavior is not what anyone in the room, all the servants of the king, expected. He got up, he washes himself, he anoints himself, changes his clothes, and he puts on his worship. Sounds like someone else, don't we? In the midst of disaster, who else do we know that was everything was taken from him? His house, his family, his children, everything. It, Job. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, Job 1, on the ground and fell on the ground and worshiped the Lord. Naked I have come into this world from my mother's womb and I shall go back the same way. The Lord gave and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But the servants of David are like, 
This is opposite. You're supposed to grieve when the child's dead. Here you are grieving while he's alive. Doesn't kind of match. David abandoned his weakening and returned to worship. And David gives us the reason again, verse 22. I fasted and I wept. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me? While the baby's alive, I'm fasting, I'm weeping, I'm praying. I don't know. Will the Lord be gracious to me? Verse 23. But now, verse 20, 23, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? I can't bring him back. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David is praying. Lord, don't take this. Don't, don't make these consequences come true. Have grace upon me. I know you. I'm, I'm beseeching you. And now the child has died. God's will is known. David, the answer is no. You will bear the consequences. It's not a surprise. Nathan told him. He, as much as you don't want to hear, the word of God is firm. Right? The possibility to pray now is over. And now David is resting knowing that I will not see my son, but this I know. As my son died, I shall too die. He will not come back to me, but I will go to him. He's a changed man. Old Testament commentator Walter Brueggemann, David's reaction to the child, David's reaction to the death of his child is an act of profound faith. David had discerned for whatever reasons that the issues of his life are not to be found in cringing fear before the powers of death, but in his ability to embrace and abandon, to love and to leave, to take life as it comes, not with indifferences, but with freedom, not with callousness, but with buoyancy. It's an act of faith. I don't believe, I don't believe that when David got off the ground and worshipped, that all of a sudden the mourning and the grieving of David is over, or even that for Bathsheba is over. The pain of losing a child, whether it's in the womb or by any other means, does not simply go away because we trust the Lord and worship the Lord. But when our final and full and complete rest is in God, we can at some point get off the ground and move forward. David, and let me challenge you this morning, David's worldview of life and death is grounded in his God and in the word of God. Is yours? Is mine? We're bombarded in our culture with opposites of that. Our culture today is get all you can get, be yourself, do as you wish, no thought of eternity. But not David. David understood And in the midst of suffering, David believed that his son went from the land of the dying to the land of the living. That his unnamed son now, even without being circumcised, was in the presence of the mercy, compassion, and steadfast love of Almighty God in eternal bliss. And he worshiped the Lord. You see, David was praying, and his prayer was fueled by the God of compassion and by his compassion as a dad praying for his son. And now that his son has ceased, has passed away, he worships the Lord. 
Uh, Family, I told you this last week. It is important to have a good and right theology. Everyone has one. You could be an atheist and never even heard the word theology before. You have a basic understanding of who God is and why are we here. David sees the Lord for who he is. And notice something else here. Look at, look, look at the passage, verse 20. David doesn't eat. David doesn't break his fast until he's in the house to worship God. His hunger for a right relationship with God exceeded his hunger for food. Suffering family has a way of reorganizing, re, re, restructuring, reordering our life. It's the difference between a knife that cuts to hurt you and a knife that cuts and heals you. God is a God of love and compassion. He's a God with, a, with, a, with that knife in his hand, the delicate surgeon who can bring healing to his surgery. Keller writes, David knew this wasn't a punishment. Instead, it was surgery. Surgery on the fundamental issues of his life. Surgery that will make him, in the end, you and I too, wiser, richer, deeper, and even happier, but if only do it while he's on the floor. But it'll only do that when he's, while he's on the floor, with emotional reality and intellectual humility, he holds on to God in spite of the fact he has no idea what God is doing. What he's saying is, David is in the hands of Almighty God. He, he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he trusts the Lord. Suffering will do that. Suffering will do that. It's a comfort for him. And, and, and there's a peace, we heard it this morning, that passes him. David was a changed man. David was a changed man. Now remember, remember, David knew, David knew that this wasn't punishment. But David knew, David knew that his sins had been forgiven because of who Jesus is. David knew that he would go to the place where his son would be. Now, some people Some people, and I do, I look at this text and it gives me encouragement when children pass. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. I find encouragement here that David understood God's character. He loves children. David, I think, understood what Romans, what, excuse me, Deuteronomy 135 teaches through 39 about about, uh, uh, children not having the capacity of good and evil. I think David truly understood that this infant child is in the presence of God. And and I think we should take courage in that. I I think that we should take joy in that. I think the scriptures teach that. I think history teaches that. Let let me give you a couple of of, of quotes. B.B. Warfield. Their children's destiny is determined irrespective of their choice by an unconditional decree of God, suspended for its execution on no act of their own, and their salvation is wrought by an unconditional application of the grace of Christ to their souls. That's what I believe. I believe David is assured that children are in the presence of God. Because of Jesus, 
And I don't have time to get into this, but I'd be more than happy to talk with you, send you an email. Because of Jesus, and David is assured, I will not, I will not bring that child back, but I will go to him. Let that just fill your souls this morning. The mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness of Christ. It gets better. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son. He called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. It's the first time she's called, not the wife of Uriah, but David's wife. And David's not using her now. David is what? Comforting her now. And I think it's important to recognize that David did this after he was given the word of God, repented of his sins, went in the house of worship. And now David is willing to not use Bathsheba, but comfort people. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves have received and have been comforted by God. That's what David is doing. David's grace and mercy that he's received has allowed him to to continue on his line. It's a miracle of grace. The Lord put away his sin. And now we see this child being born to, to Bathsheba without the effects, without the consequences of sin. And that is the grace of God. And what do they name him? Look what they name him. Solomon. You know where that word comes from? Shalom. Literally, his God's peace. The following of, of the death of a son, the birth of another son, Solomon is saying, I am at peace with God. I will name him Solomon. Peace. He will be the one who will build the temple. Solomon will be the one in the lineage of Christ. From David through Solomon comes King Jesus. For unto us a child is born, right? The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Say it, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. He will uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We need peace, family. The most important aspect of your life and my life, what's most important is that there's enmity between us, between God and his rebellious creatures. That's you and me. You're welcome. And the most, the, the most primary condition of our heart is not that we need more information, we need more education or motivation. We need a reconciler. We need to have peace with God. And it's in Christ alone. Solomon. Peace is a foreshadow of the Prince of Peace. Of the Prince of Peace, the great reconciler, reconciler the mediator, his name is Jesus. And look at verse 25, it even gets better. The Lord loved Solomon, and the Lord sends Nathan back to David to tell him so. Verse 25, and sent the message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name what? Jedidiah, because of the Lord. You know what Jedidiah means? Love of God. Beloved of God. Now David is doubly assured. I have peace with God. I have the enmity between God and I has been removed. 
And what's so interesting, and we'll close on this last thing. What's so interesting, stay with me for two more minutes. What is so interesting is that God chose Solomon over all the other sons of David. He had multiple sons and multiple wives. But God chose Solomon as king, successor of David, the choice of Bathsheba being the mom who will one day be in the motherly line of Jesus to point us to a truth, to a reality this morning that fellowship with God can happen no matter who you are. Matthew chapter 1. The lineage of Jesus, the, 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 the pedigree David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You see it? Doesn't even use her name. It's not a slam on Bathsheba. It's a slam on David. The author and Matthew is telling us, do you recall the incident in 2 Samuel? That the wife of Uriah, the sin of David, is here in the lineage of Christ. Now, lineages in that day were like pedigrees. They were like resumes. Look at that resume. There's Tamar. Remember Tamar? She acted like a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law. You remember Rahab? She's actually a prostitute. And then there's the wife of Uriah. Why? Why does that, why is this story, why is that brought to our attention in Matthew chapter 1? I'll tell you why. It's to show us that the gospel comes to those who are willing to admit that we are sinners and we are in need of forgiveness. The gospel is not that we bring to God some pedigree or some sort of resume and good deeds and he blesses us. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life, the life we needed to live and didn't. He died a death he didn't deserve to die for us, the ones who deserve it. Jesus comes and dies as a sin substitute on our behalf so that by sheer grace we could be brought back into a right relationship with God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God is someone who wants to and will forgive you and bring you into his family and you can be the beloved of God. The enmity that our sin has caused and the punishment that we deserve has been placed on Jesus Christ. He takes our punishment. He takes our penalty for our sin and removes the enmity. And he gives us what? Peace. Sin removed, relationship restored. That's what this is pointing to. David had a heart surgery family. And it's hard. Been there. Many of you have been there. Maybe you're in it now. He's now trusting and resting in God. And God demonstrates his love to him by sending the son, Jedediah. David says, I have peace with God. I'll name him Solomon. And my prayer for you this morning as we continue to worship that you will respond today by trusting in God, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ who died as your and my substitute. Rose from the dead three days later and offers forgiveness of sins and peace with God. Worship him this morning, family. Worship him this morning as your greatest treasure. Give him the glory, do him, and he will give you himself. 
Everlasting joy is the result. Will you worship the one true God? Father, you are a gracious surgeon doing surgery on our hearts for our good and your glory. We need to acknowledge that this morning. That suffering in your hands has multiple purposes, but maybe infinite number of purposes. I don't know. But one thing we do know is we see here that we're not trusting in ourselves, but running to you, clinging to you, resting in you, trusting in you, the one who has taken on flesh, died for our sin, rose from the dead. What greater love could there possibly be? So, Father, as we respond now, let us hold on to you. Let us worship you, Lord Jesus. Spirit and truth, we pray. Let us respond in worship.